our great God and Father, we praise you as the God of love and we ask that as we give our hearts and minds just for this short time, seeking to understand and grasp and more be gripped by that love, that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing in all the world like being loved, truly, madly, deeply loved. I went to a private school, uh, or an independent school, as uh, I've learned to call it more recently, because uh, it's open to all people. I just want to let you know that. Uh, I came from a family shaped in the, in the traditions of mid-century Europe, incredibly toughened by war, a family which was, in consequence of that, fairly reserved and maybe even cold, you might say. It was late high school that I started wrestling with the desire to be loved, understood and recognised that in myself. And it was not long after then that I met the love of my life. It was utterly incredible. The sense of really being known and really being loved. I used to hear words like cherish, adored, delight, And I found it completely, personally transforming for me. What had been a genuine emptiness at the core of my being was wonderfully, transformingly filled. And then a couple of months later I met the woman who would be my wife. (laughs) My great love, of course, as is yours if you're a Christian person here today, my great love is the living and true God in his son Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me, who loved you, and gave himself up for you. And there is nothing in all the world, in all the world, like being loved. This afternoon we continue in our series about being a vibrant, vital, full Christian person, characterised by faith and hope and this week love. As in the last two talks, we're going to start with the objective and move to the subjective. We're going to take first some time to explore the contours of God's love for us, And then secondly, see uh, how we are to love God and others. So in your extensive outline, you see there, after the introduction, point one, the texture of God's love. There are four things that we need to say from the scriptures about the texture of God's love. You may need to fill in if your outline doesn't have them. Firstly, God loves in freedom and fullness. God loves in freedom and fullness. God does not love from lack or need. This is what's at stake in the marvellous biblical affirmation that God is love. What theologian Emil Brunner said was the most daring statement ever made in the English language. In the human language. Actually, it was in Greek when it was first written. Not the English language. And he spoke German, so he wouldn't have been talking English anyway. (laughs) Uh, The Apostle John wrote this sentence twice. Beloved, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Then nine verses later, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. The point here is that love is not something that God kind of does. It's not something that he takes up at one time and puts down at another time. It's not something that he starts and stops. It's not really that God loves, it's that God is love. That God defines love and is himself defined by love. So that all his acts and his works are the expression of his love. This of course is the case 
way before you or me or in fact the universe existed at all. Theologically it's traced through the fact that God is himself Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That in and between themselves they are a community of love. The Father loves the Son in the Spirit and gives him all things. The Son loves the Father and by the power of the Spirit submits to him in everything saying not my will be done but yours. This is who God is in his very essence and identity. One God, Father, Son and Spirit, this matrix or community of love. And that means that as God relates to us and calls us to relate to him, this is not from any deficit on his part, but it's the overflow of his own shared love from all eternity, Father, Son and Spirit. Now contrast that of course with us where our love is a mixture of deficit and need along with surplus and overflow. Uh, This gets in the way of our relationships all the time of course uh, in in significant ways or just in fairly minor ways we often find ourselves hurting most the people we love most. Isn't that true? The people we speak most harshly to the people we expect most from the people we're most disappointed by are often actually the people we're closest to especially our families. And it's precisely because we expect and even need most from them. Our loves are very mixed things. We need response to our love to fill the hole that we have in our hearts. But that's not the way God loves. God's love is from himself, from within himself, as the overflow of his own fullness of love. He loves not those who are lovable, not those who are lovely, because it derives not from something in them. He loves those whom he loves because he loves because he is love, really is the logic of the Bible. Secondly, and precisely because love, God loves him, uh, freedom and fullness because he is love, therefore the extent of God's love is truly universal. Truly universal in that he loves his enemies. Not only those who don't love him, but those who actively resist and hate him. This is at the heart of Jesus' shocking challenge in the Sermon on the Mount to live in a way that looks wastefully and stupidly sacrificial. Until you realise that this is how God is, this is how reality is. Listen to it, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. That makes some sense, doesn't it? Well, no, it doesn't actually. Not when God is at the heart of the universe. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in Heaven. Why? Because what kind of Father in Heaven? Well, this is the kind of Father in Heaven he is. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous and even the occasional hailstorm. You see how it works? When you love your enemy. And, and you may care to reflect whether you have any enemies and how you're going at loving your enemies being in any way distinct from pagans and unbelievers who, who hate their enemies that's easy to do when you do that you see you're being like God you're bearing the family likeness you have the family stamp you have that patrician jaw about you or whatever it might be because that is exactly how God is we are faulting and failing and frail in this of course but not God. Because God is himself love, therefore he loves without restriction, without boundary, without end. 
Third, the Bible repeatedly directs our gaze at Jesus Christ. This love is revealed in Jesus Christ, the white-hot focal point of the love of God. Uh, the Apostle John continues after that first quote, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, God's love was revealed, us among, uh, sorry, was revealed among us in this way, that everyone who believes in him has a really good life and everything goes well. No. No, don't believe that. God sent his son, his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul makes exactly the same point in Romans 5 where he uses a very meaty, concrete kind of term which is all about the making of truth or reality absolutely clear and unmistakable. Romans 5 verse 8 God proves, demonstrates, concretely enacts his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. This is so crucial isn't it, on this topic. It combats the constant tug of evaluating the love of God for me by the barometer of my experiences. Uh, you may be tempted to run with a simple logic. It's one that my six-year-old daughter uses all the time, which is perhaps all that needs to be said about the maturity of this reasoning. Ready? Premise A. If you... That fell over. I'm not going to cover that. <laughs> Okay, I've heard of that stuff. I've asked Jim, I can philosophize about it. Oh, yeah, so here's the the premise. Premise A if you love me, you'd give me X. That's what my daughter says to me. I would like, if you love me really, Daddy, you would give me a big boat for my birthday. It's coming up in a week's time. Premise B, I don't have X. Conclusion? Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Therefore, you don't love me, or at least there are serious question marks about it. I know a woman who for years struggled with the fact that she was single, prayed repeatedly, day after day, night after night, for her husband, until eventually she gave up the Christian faith on the grounds that God evidently didn't love her couldn't love her since he hadn't provided her with a husband but you see what's happening there on that chain of thought my having a husband or not my being successful or not my fulfilling the dreams of my life or not my enjoying good health or not whatever it might be that thing counts more highly in the determination of whether God loves you than the cross does you see that Yeah, sure, the cross was all very good, but what about my boat? That can't be, can it? That's horrible. God has decisively, conclusively, concretely, massively, even horrifically, demonstrated his love. In that while you were a sinner, apart from any deserving merit or claim that you might have had, out of the great love with which he loved you, he just gave his own son to die for you. Thirdly, sorry, that's thirdly, fourthly, and this sounds kind of strange to hear, we touched briefly on it at an annual conference if you were there, God's love encompasses God's wrath. God's love encompasses God's wrath and even takes priority over it. 
very important to understand the relation between these two things uh, carefully and rightly. The reason is that the opposite of love is not wrath, it's indifference. The opposite of love is indifference, not caring, and in particular not caring if the other person does the right or wrong thing. That is the absence of love, just a sheer uh, withdrawal. Love is taking the other person seriously as a person, including taking their growth and welfare seriously, and so being angry at any interference to their growth and welfare like their wrongdoing. At the same time, it's also true to say that that love is God's proper or natural work, whereas wrath and judgment are his strange or alien work. Loving is the work of his right hand, if you're right-handed. Or left hand, if you're left handed, if you know what I mean. Actually, that's not going to work, don't go there. <laughs> Check out Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21. We won't look at it now, but you've seen it uh, there. Isaiah the prophet speaks of judgment as the alien or strange work of God. Yes, it's necessary, the sun casts shadows, but the purpose of the sun is to give light and life, and health and freedom and joy. You see this in a remarkable passage from Hosea where through the prophet God rips open the workings of his own heart. He he describes Israel as his child uh, whom he has loved and raised in wonderfully tender terms. It looks like it's all going to go pear-shaped when Israel rebels and that his wrath is going to be evoked. But eventually his love triumphs. Verse 8 of of Hosea chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. In this internal battle for God, there is a clear winner. But listen to how this verse finishes. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and therefore I will not come in wrath. Because he is holy, precisely because he is utterly different, unlike anything that we can know or experience, therefore he will not execute his fierce wrath on Israel. The holiness of God is that which depicts his differentness from us, his distance, his far awayness. The love of God is God in his likeness to us, his closeness and intimacy. And the point which I think Hosea is grasping, but which we see wonderfully enacted in the cross of Christ, is that in Christ God is at his Godmost, his Godest. In that unlike us, these two things, his wrath, his holiness and his love, his distance and his closeness, they're not opposites to each other, but are the expression of the love of the one true God in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ crucified. What I'm saying is, this is the love of God for you. When you hear the word love, this is what you're to think of. This love, perfect, utterly wise, knowing, unstoppable love for you, made utterly concrete in Christ. In Christ, God is your Father. He's your Shepherd. He's your Saviour. He's your Hero. He's your Coach. He cherishes you. He chases after you. He listens to you. 
He sacrifices himself for you, you, specifically you. And this is no mere human being, right? This is not just some woman or some bloke, some person who needs you every bit as much as you need them, some person who doesn't even know half of what goes on inside your head. This is the living and true God who knows all and who sees all and who loves you in all of this. Is there, more, is there a more freeing or empowering, almost irresponsible thing? Once you get this, frankly, does anything else left in life matter that much? How unstoppable would you be? if you were really to be grasped by this love. What have you got left to prove if you're loved from the heart of the universe by the living and true God? If you're not a Christian person here today, can I say, will you hear this? There's much to understand about the Christian faith. There's many Uh, important things in the Bible, there's lots of truths to be grasped. But this is the heart of it all. This is what it gets down to. You boil it all away and this is what's left. The deep, deep love of Jesus. If you're not a Christian person, you have nothing to fear from God. You have nothing to fear from... You give up nothing in becoming a Christian that you really miss. You have everything to gain the experience of the love of the God of the universe for you. I suspect the difference between those who flourish in the Christian life, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of extremes, those who make a significant impact for Christ in this life and those who just kind of dribble their way through life. The big difference is really at this point here. When you are gripped by this love, then, then you become pretty much unstoppable, I think. So why does it seem to make not that much difference in so many of our lives? I guess there are lots of reasons. We're kind of forgetful people. We get uh, easily consumed by the present, the urgent, the attention demanding. But also because at times we can misunderstand the love of God. We play tricks in our heads that starts with something beautiful and wonderful and dilutes it. And so I want to take some time just briefly to dispel some ugly rumours about the love of God. Ugly rumour number one. You can sometimes fall into a pattern of thinking which says, God loves me because he's saved me. God loves me because he's made me one of his own. This is a terrible mistake, a gross error. In fact, it's the other way around, of course. He saved you because he first loved you. He made you his own because he first loved you. He loved you at your worst, you see. That's the point. And that means that there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do that will stop him from loving you. It's as simple as that. There's a worse mistake you can make. You can think that uh, the one that you're saved from is the God of wrath by the God of love. You can get the wrath thing so big in your mind that you end up understanding the gospel to mean that there's this nice person, Jesus, who loves you who saves you from an angry and wrathful God. I heard it put that way uh, not very long ago uh, in my own ears. I didn't think anyone said this anymore, but it was there. 
Some images of the gospel help us to think this way. You may have heard that the image put that when uh, you know, you know, judgment comes and you'll appear before the judgment seat of God, your maker, he'll open the books, read out all the things that you've done, and he's about to sort of bring down his little you know, wooden mallet. I don't know why he has a little wooden mallet, but maybe God needs a wooden mallet. Whack! On your head. But just as the mallet's about to come down, Jesus steps in. Ah, it's okay, Dad, or something. <laughs> She's mine. He's mine. And then you kind of slink out behind Jesus and go out through a side door and hope that God doesn't sort of look too carefully at you. <laughs> In that picture, of course, you're saved from God. And if you think that you're saved from God, then you'll never know God's love for you. You'll never entrust yourself to God's love for you. You'll never be able to love God. In fact, you'll always be slightly nervous about God. You'll never really be able to pray. You won't receive his word with joy. And you'll live a stunted life as a Christian person. You're not saved from God. That's an abomination. You're saved by God. It was all his idea in the first place. Ephesians chapter 2. It's the God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That is the origin of the gospel. God is not kind of angry. Jesus saves you from him. That's an abomination. Well, third, you can say that God loves you despite you. This is ugly rumour number one. God does a kind of divine gulp. He loves you, I guess, but he really doesn't like you very much. After all, you're not a very likeable person. In fact, frankly, he's a bit disgusted by you, but by a supreme act of divine willpower, he forces himself at least to do good things for you. Because, you know, that's what love is, isn't it? Doing good things for people. He loves you despite you. Now, there's an important truth in it. It denies its opposite, which is that God loves you because of you. That's not true either. That he loves you because of how lovely and lovable you are. No, the truth lies elsewhere from these two extremes. It's not that God loves you because of you, nor is it I think that God loves you despite you. Rather, God loves you in you. God loves you in who you are. Taking into full account who you are. Knowing you. In fact, better than you know yourself. He loves you despite your sin. Yes, that's true. But that's not despite who you are. Precisely because you are not your sin. You understand that? Before you sin, before you're a sinner, you're a creature. A loved, blessed creation by this God who is love. Fourthly, you can fall into another ugly rumour, the view that God's love for you is a kind of abstract, general, corporate kind of love. I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte, not renowned for his theological acumen, who said on his deathbed when asked about his eternal future, God will love and forgive me, it's his job. Well, I think that pretty much sums up French theology. (laughs) Well, can anything good come out of Paris? No, no, that's not true. I'm sure many good things come out of Paris. Duck à l'orange and other things. It's not God's job. That's appalling. As though somehow it was this sort of abstract general thing that God couldn't help himself do. It's his nature. It's his being. And that means that as he responds to us as individuals, he responds out of his nature. His wrath against people is specific and personal. Why would his love be any less so? 
Now it's not some job that God has got. It's his knowledge and love for you personally and specifically. Fifthly, and I, I wonder how much uh, this is true for many of us. We really kind of fall for this one. That God loves us at the start. You know, when you become a Christian, God's really, he's pretty wrapped about that. But that as things go on, he kind of expects more from you. Well, actually, he demands more from you. And as you increasingly go on in the Christian life and realise how far short you fall of his mark, well, correspondingly, his love for you declines. Frankly, God gets increasingly cranky with you. And so what you have to look forward to in the Christian life is 40 years of increasing gap between what you are and what you ought to be, and therefore an increasing growth in God's crankiness towards you. I fear that many of us are brought into this, that we think that we were better and more kind of connected to God when we started, but as things get a little more sort of on and tired and we realise what it is that the Christian life, we think, well, God, he must be pretty upset by me. Again, that can't be right. The Bible speaks of God in the present as the one who loves us, who nourishes us, who tenderly cares in the present tense for his people. That's God to you. He nourishes and tenderly cares for you. He's not cranky at you. This then is the love of God for us. And this too is to be the love which we're to show toward him and also toward others. As the Apostle Paul puts it, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. See, you've been loved in this way, he says. And you're to be an imitator of God and live in love. You see the hinge around which it pivots. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And it's a chapter where we began this series, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which expounds this life of love with great clarity and force. Remember the chapter opens with a statement as to the necessity of love. You can have every ability, every gift, every spiritual experience, every act of commitment in the world, but if you don't have love, says the Apostle, then you are nothing. You sound like nothing. You are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. You are a joke. What is it, this thing then, without which you're a joke? Well, verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's pretty good, isn't it? Notice the structure here. There are two general qualities or virtues, then eight negatives, eight what love is not. And then last, a final staccato of four things. The first thing that Paul mentions are two key virtues. Love is patient and love is kind. These are familiar as virtues in the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is a preparedness to wait and to not demand. It's to delay response and especially to delay the response of revenge. It's primarily passive. Kindness is its complement. It's more active. A moving out toward one another for their good. 
Kindness is all about giving to others and especially where there is no expectation of return. I read recently the story of an eight-year-old boy who had a sister who was dying of leukaemia. He was told that without a blood transfusion she would die in all likelihood and so his parents asked if they could test his blood to see if it was a match and he said sure. They tested, it was a match. They asked if he could give his sister a pint of blood and that it could be a really significant thing for her. It could be her only chance. And he paused and said he'd think about it overnight. The next day he said he was up for it. They took him to the hospital, hooked him up in the IV drip, him and to his sister, and he watched as he saw the blood passing down the tube from his arm into hers. A doctor came over to see how he was doing. And the boy said to him quietly, how soon until I start to die? See, that's kindness, isn't it? The giving without the expectation of return. He thought that there would be all his blood that would go, not just a pint. Love is never so fully love as when it gives, when it just out. For love is kind. Then there are the negatives. Love is not envious. Is not envy the great bane of young adult life? See, I say this now of you because I'm no longer a young adult. You live at a time when you're so, so aware of how you appear in other people's eyes. The temptation is so great to look at other people and to envy them, their social ease, their personal confidence and brightness, their spiritual status, their theological eruditeness, their togetherness and popularity, their intelligence, even something as, as, as banal as their shape and size, for goodness sake. Envy is seeing the good things about another, but being concerned with it only in terms of yourself and your lack, and not rejoicing for the other person. But love is not envious. The flip side of that is that love equally is not boastful or arrogant. Being arrogant is having the attitude of being better to someone else, seeing the good in yourself and being concerned with it only in terms of yourself. See how they're the flip side of each other. Uh, arrogance, of course, can be done very, very subtly. Uh, when I did the HSC, uh, I had a not-so-friendly rivalry with another guy from another school of my youth fellowship group. Uh, I ended up beating him by one mark back in the good old days when it was out of 500, right? One out of 500. It's probably just my handwriting or something. Anyway, we saw each other on the train. I still remember this, where we were. It was at Kalara Railway Station. I asked him how he went, and he said, he gave, said his mark. And at that moment, it was clear. My back straightened a little bit. <laughs> I looked him straight in the eye. My eyebrows raised just a tad. It was a very subtle moment of arrogance. I told him, but I didn't need to tell him that I'd beaten him. We both knew, simply by the posture and the look. It's very easy, isn't it, to be arrogant, to be full of yourself, to know the good things about yourself and be concerned with them only for yourself. But there's no place for that in the heart of love. Love is not rude, thirdly. Perhaps better is love does not behave shamefully or disgracefully. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul describes how there were some wives who were disgracing their husbands or later in that chapter when he talks about how some richer members of the congregation were greedy at the Lord's Supper and disgrace or humiliate others who have nothing. On the contrary, love is not unaware or neglectful of its effects on other people. 
Love is deeply concerned to take responsibility for the impact that we have in others' lives. It does not insist, fourthly, on its own way, even when that way is rightfully yours. Quick to give up its rights. Love is not irritable. I think this is brilliant. How many of our problems are about minor irritations? Little flies in the ointment of our relationships. Someone wasn't quite pleasant enough to me. They didn't ring me and tell me precisely where or when they weren't going to meet me. The right process wasn't strictly adhered to. I wasn't kept in the loop. The tone of voice that the person used wasn't quite right. But love is not irritable. There's plenty of give, plenty of slack, plenty of capacity to bear in love. Love is not resentful. Literally a keeper of wrongs. Of course there's not much to say here is there. You know all about the keeping of wrongs. How many of us have a list of things done wrong to us in minute detail that you can remember with vice-like accuracy? The precise words, actions, tone of voice, hand gesticulations when someone hurt you. And if needed, you can produce it and and give testimony in a court of law. But love keeps no wrongs. I was very forgetful in a sense. What was it? Oh yes, I have some vague recollection. No, in fact, let's not bother talking about it. I accept your apology. There's no keeping of wrongs in love. Love does not rejoice, says the Apostle, in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This is a favourite pastime, isn't it? Rejoicing in wrongdoing to notice the legitimate failings and faults of others whether they're in the same group as you or in a different group others who are different from you usually oldies versus youngies you may have that sort of uh, dynamic going in your church charismatics versus non-charismatics liberals versus fundamentalists social action guys versus hardcore uh, evangelicals and so on And, and so often as we talk about them really what we were doing is rejoicing in wrongdoing And so you add your sin to their supposed failing. But there's no place for that in love. Love rejoices in the truth. And finally, in that spiccato, which is also a dig at the Corinthian Christians who were very much into all, into fullness, their favourite phrase was, all things are permissible. Paul says, well here's what the fullness of the Christian life is, here's what the all of the Christian life is. Love Believe, what is it? Believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Bearing and enduring things in the present. Trusting and hoping for things in the future. That's the fullness of the Christian life. What the Apostle is saying is that you might be the most spiritually gifted person in all of Sydney. There may be no theological question unsolved by you. You may be utterly zealous for the Lord, burning brightly for Jesus. You may be intelligent and successful in every endeavour and profoundly gifted in every way. But if you don't have this stuff, honestly, if you don't have this stuff, then you are nothing. You're a spiritual vacuum. No one else may see it. You may deceive them. You may even deceive yourself. It may be that you think you're doing okay. But God says it. God knows the state of your spiritual bank balance. 
And without love, it's zero. This is a big challenge for us, isn't it, I think? I think our great problem is finding even 15 minutes in a row without checking the old personal welfare barometer. Simply getting our heads out of our belly buttons long enough to take some interest in how others are going. Imagine if we as a community here at uni or in our churches really lived 1 Corinthians 13. What an astoundingly radical thing. Sustained, genuine interest in the other. Real compassion, not just posturing. No more bitching about others, whinging and complaining. Imagine the small groups, the home groups, the praying for one another. Imagine the infiltration effect on our networks of friends as they find themselves confronted by people who don't just talk, but who act, who really stand up for what they believe, and the most important thing that they believe is that if they don't have love, that they're nothing. Imagine if that was the thing that was most easy. You ask the university, what is it that you most notice about EUers, about Christians? I'll tell you what I know, that geez, I love. They're really interested in other people. They really care. That's the kind of people that we're called to be. People who at the core are full of the thoughts of others, not full of themselves. It'll be a core that'll be shaped by the particularities of our giftedness and by our personality and our abilities, but it won't be replaced by that stuff. So this university is so disinterested in character and things of substance and really in just little letters, isn't it? But you get as many H's before your D's. And they'll be surprised just how well treated you'll be if you're at the top of your class. That's nonsense. We've got to stand different from that, don't we? That we can be 1 Corinthians 13 type of people. That we can be God's type of people. Because this is how God is. This is how God is. Some quick myth-busting about love as well. Uh, Love is, I think, not only a verb. Uh, we've kind of swung from the sort of soppy psychological 70s where love was all about feeling. <laughs> and so we went, no, we're Christians. Love is a verb. Love is about action. Well, I don't think either extreme is uh, particularly helpful. I don't think that these two things really ought to be separated from one another. Love is an action, of course. Love acts. But as well as it a profound matter of the heart. You can't divorce your action from your heart. Secondly, notice that these are very ordinary things about the ordinary stuff of life. This is not some impossibly difficult standard, setting the bar so high that you realise that you can't do it and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. You can do it. This is the kind of person that you can be, that you must be. And I know many people here in the EU who typify this vision of love and Christian living. I could tell you stories of people who in the face of severe provocation are patient, who see the needs of people and have responded with a kindness that's not required or expected of them and expect nothing in return, who are supremely gifted and achieve great honours and, and uh, you know, uh, prizes and awards and so on and yet teach five-year-olds about God on a Sunday morning. This is about life in the concrete, as, as simple as things like coming to the AGM, boring committee work even, 
taking up responsibility as an EU member and being there to say, yes, I belong and I'm with this. Love includes really dull things like that. You may be a deeply self-oriented person. You realise, yes, actually, I'm, I'm profoundly concerned with myself. Let me make a suggestion for a starting point as to how to get out of that, because that way is a disaster. Author M. Scott Peck suggests that love is a form of work and the principal form that the work of love takes is attention. When we love another person, we give him or her our attention. We attend to that person's growth. The first step to growing in love is to put your hand to the plough to pay attention to other people to attend to them. To not find yourself or to resist the temptation that you find in yourself to turn the conversation to be about you. Someone once asked Mother Teresa what she saw. She walked through the streets of Calcutta where the poorest of the poor lived, the orphans and the starving and the dying and her reply, picking up on Matthew 25, was this, I see Jesus in a distressing disguise. Attend to others, the least of your brothers and sisters as though which in fact of course they are as though they were Jesus for all of us though there's challenge here isn't there? we need to ask ourselves some questions like this am I becoming more or less approachable am I available to the people in, the, uh, in my world do I sometimes speak or write a word of encouragement to people simply for the sake of offering them joy Am I getting better at listening to people without judging them? These are some of the marks of a person who is growing in love and growing in being like God. Read over 1 Corinthians 13 and ask yourself which of these virtues catches you most directly. Perhaps you're a person for whom patience is very hard and you suffer fools lightly. Well, know God's patience for you. He suffered you pretty well, didn't he? Maybe you're too aware of your own gifts and abilities. Well, Know the God who used his gifts and abilities for you. Perhaps you're an irritable person. Know the God who deals gently with your foibles. You see, the two parts of this talk really hang together, don't they? It's very hard to treat others badly when you know the God who has treated you well. It's very hard to treat others with contempt when you know that God has treated you with delight. It's hard to suffer fools lightly when you know that God has suffered you at the cost of the cross. There's a profound spiritual dynamic at work here. The extent to which you are gripped by the reality of God's love for you is the extent to which you'll be able to love other people. That works in reverse as well. Insofar as your heart is cold towards others, insofar as you're a fundamentally impatient, unkind, self-oriented person, well, so you've never really known the love of God. As the Apostle John puts it, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Do you want to be a more loving person? How could you not? What more is there in life to be? You feel the call of God on your life? Well then get to know God better. To know the God who is love better. Reflect and pause and meditate and speak to yourself the truth of the breadth 
and height and love and length and depth and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. And then you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would seal in our hearts by your Holy Spirit your great love poured out for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you would make us day by day a little more like yourself. Those who live in love, we ask it in Jesus' name.